Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what's up for today? So in this episode, we're continuing our two-part series on the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. In our last episode, we examined the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford, and today we're going to be breaking down how Kavanaugh himself responded, as well as how politicians frame their ideas toward him. But first, let's get to some listener questions. What did we get, Alex? Well, we got a couple of questions that came in through our website, subliminallycorrect.com. So if you do not hear your question read right now, be sure to head on over to subliminallycorrect.com and submit your questions there. Or you can go online um, and tweet some of them at us. So let's get started. Now, one listener asks, Judge Kavanaugh made an emotional and fiery statement to the Senate. He was sitting in the hot seat and acted very poorly, essentially having a tantrum. Do the emotions he is showing point to him being an innocent man defending himself of being guilty? Or a guilty man who's been found out. Yeah, so someone who is guilty and who has just been found out, they have this kind of sense of loss, right? There's something that they've lost. And if you think about it like this, he is looking forward in the future to what he perceives as the inevitable future. And when he thinks about the inevitable future, meaning, hey, it happened, I've been found out, now you know, here's the future of what that might mean. When he thinks about the inevitable future, he gets angry as a reaction. And remember that anger oftentimes underneath it has sadness, right? Underneath anger, we have sadness. We have a feeling of uh, being let down, maybe even grief, a feeling of having lost something. And so I think that when he's getting so angry about this, um, it, it does seem like, you know, it's really hard to see, okay, is what he's saying something that is, you know, simply an innocent guy who's just been, you know, accused in the wrong way or framed the wrong way or has his reputation to uphold? Or is this really, you know, someone who, you know, did the thing and now, you know, he's he's been found out? Ultimately, I don't think we are going to necessarily know the answer to that. Okay, we don't necessarily know whether he is 100% guilty or 100% because we weren't in the room. Okay, we weren't actually there. All we can look at are what are the signs and signals that might actually lead us to that. And he definitely does seem to be defending himself more than a person who has just been wrongly accused. Um, I think that a lot of the Republicans pointed to, well, this guy's just been wrongly accused and that's why he's so angry. And wouldn't you be angry if someone had, you know, dragged your name through the mud in this way? But at the same time, you know, if you think about it, didn't he have to expect something like that happening, right? Like someone going through a confirmation hearing for the Supreme Court, like he knew that they were going to dig up something on him. And it's almost like, wow, they actually found what was there. He didn't think maybe that they would find that or he didn't think that that would happen. And so now he's really angry, um, not as a reaction necessarily to what's been been done to him, but as a reaction, just all of the feelings that are being stirred up inside of him. And so I think that's that's a critical distinction to, to, to think about with the body language is to say, is he angry because of the other person's behavior? Or is he just angry because of the way that he's feeling in this kind of sense that something isn't right in his world? OK, so that's that's kind of my uh, take on it. Right. Yeah, that's that's extremely perceptive. So let's get to the other question here. Do you think the Kavanaugh hearings helped or hurt the Republicans' chances in the midterms? 
And this one is great because for me, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about. And I, you know, it's hard to say. And we've seen now since the hearings that a lot of uh, polls that came out said that Republicans were getting really enthusiastic about the election. And to be honest, just on my personal political sense, I would argue that no, that's just the natural cycle of elections where we get closer and closer to election day and the excitement on both sides um, tends to even out a little bit more. But you, so you really want to look at who had the more sustained um, excitement leading up to election day. And that was, of course, the Democrats. So I don't know if I really see a bump. One little idea that I've been playing around with was that Maybe like one of the questions that was asked recently in a poll was how important do you think it is that you vote in this next election or something similar? And that's how everybody is gauging, quote unquote, like excitement about the election. And that answer can be interpreted in different ways. So Mm. a Republican who answers that, you know, it is very important to vote in this next election that might not indicate that they're planning to vote for the Republican, that we could have a lot of Republican women or a lot of, you know, maybe Republican men who are never sort of on Trump's side that are now excited and energized about voting against the Republicans in the midterms because of the way that this hearing went down. I don't know if that's true. It's just an idea that I like playing around with, but we'll see, I guess, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it is kind of something that's hard to predict, okay, you know, because you can't just ask someone outright, how did your decision change based on this? Because, number one, immediately after that, they have so much emotional confusion about it that they might not be able to say, you know, right then how it affects them in the long term. If you wait too long, then, well, then they have to look back. And basically, human beings are notoriously bad at predicting how events affect their emotions, right? Like lottery winners think that they're going to be so happy after they win the lottery. And of course, we know that that's not the case. You know, most of them actually, some of them go into depression and, you know, they 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 have a spike, but then they eventually go back to the same way that things were. So, you know, it is a question of like, how might you measure that? What might be a better question to ask versus just how how important do you think that it is to vote? And, you know, I think you raised some good points there, Alex. All right, and that's it for questions. Um, Remember that if you've got a question or comment about the show, go to the comment section of our website or you can tweet us uh, online at SubliminalPod. And uh, be sure to think about what it is you'd like to see on the show, what sort of things you've been thinking about. If you disagree with us on anything, be sure to send that up there and we'll um, try and include what you have to say into the show. All right. So now we're going to go back and we're going to begin with the first day of the hearings before the sexual assault allegations became public as senators are giving their opening statements. Now, in the run up to this hearing, Democrats were very upset, okay, and very, you know, cautious. And Republicans were looking to just charge through and basically say, no, this person is being confirmed. Kind of that, uh, You know, Mitch McConnell idea of, you know, my proudest moment was telling Obama that Merrick Garland won't be confirmed. So they were looking to charge through. But let's hear first from the Republican senators as they characterize the two sides. And you've served over a decade on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, often referred to as the second highest court in the land. So our Democratic colleagues are not trying to make the argument that Judge Kavanaugh is not qualified. Indeed, I haven't heard anyone uh, even attempt to make that argument. Second, this hearing is not about his judicial record. Judge Kavanaugh has over 300 published opinions, which altogether amount to over 10,000 pages issued in his role as a federal appellate judge. Everyone agrees a judge's record is by far the most important indicium of what kind of justice that nominee will be. And tellingly, we've heard very little today from Democratic senators about the actual substance of Judge Kavanaugh's judicial record. Third, it's important to understand today is also not about documents. We've heard a lot of arguments this morning about documents. There's an old saying for trial lawyers. If you have the facts, 
pound the facts. If you have the law, pound the law. If you have neither, pound the table. We're seeing a lot of table pounding this morning. The Democrats are focused on procedural issues because they don't have substantive points strong enough to derail this nomination. They don't have substantive criticism with Judge Kavanaugh's actual judicial record, so they're trying to divert everyone with procedural issues. So this is probably one of my favorite quotes of this whole hearing. And, you know, we've talked about Ted Cruz and his rhetoric or whoever writes these, you know, speeches and uh, uh, prepared ideas for him. And this is just a such a wonderful, you know, quote, the old saying by trial lawyers. It's like he's taking you back and you're there in the law classroom or you're there in the trial lawyer association. And he goes into this very metaphorical framework. If you have the facts, pound the facts. If you have the law, pound the law. If you have neither, pound the table. We're seeing a lot of table pounding this morning. So all of a sudden, he's taken this this argument from being something about uh, procedural issues or being something about Kavanaugh's record, and we're talking about someone pounding a table. Now, that's such a visceral image and it it really drives home his point and he does it with this kind of old quote that was that was found you know somewhere um it's it's probably one of the best moments of this is hearing him go into this and go into this metaphorical framework if more senators do that then what you're going to find is that those are going to be the persuasive senators there's a reason why Ted Cruz was second in the Republican nomination after Donald Trump Right. And you're going to hear that the, the senators who really have that persuasive skill, they say things akin to this. And those that don't, uh, usually we're not even talking about them because they're, they're not doing anything very persuasive. Yeah. What we see also from him here is he goes back into his lyrical sort of uh, sing songy kind of voice where he gets up um, strident language pattern where you know his is stretching out his words and his language you pound the table and then he has the dramatic pause we're seeing a lot of table pounding today that sort of inflection right there that somebody almost gets lost in the emotions of his speech rather than listening to uh the actual like logic and following through logically what he's saying because honestly like logically did any of that actually mean anything um not really, but he's building connections and making connections that might not logically exist, but they do exist emotionally. And he's able to tie those together right there uh, really beautifully. And that's what makes him a successful politician. Everyone can understand emotionally what it means to pound a table, right? Everyone can, can get that. And that's why that makes it so effective. And I want to point out one other thing here that he's doing here in this language device, which is that this is a classic if then structure. So if you have the facts, then and then is implied, then you pound the facts. If you have the law, then you pound the law. If and then he moves at that moment into this metaphorical framework and then he he finishes the then. Okay. So this is a language device. It is a cause and effect language device. If this happens, then that happens. If this, then that. And cause and effect can be used to link things together that might otherwise not have a causal relationship. And but this is the way that struck that language can be structured. And it's definitely a persuasive device. In fact, it's something that's oftentimes taught in hypnosis and neurolinguistic trainings in being able to construct persuasive language. This next clip, we're going to be moving to Senator Tom Tillis. And he's going to be talking in, and again, this is day one. These are the opening statements of the Kavanaugh hearing. This is before the scandal, okay? And this is just the Republicans kind of setting up this idea. And we hear Senator Tillis, in this case, going back into uh, metaphor. Let's take a listen. I appreciate all that you've, uh, all you've done. You've obviously raised your son right. Um, you know, uh, I think we need to go back and, and recognize we were going to be here. This wasn't going to be a kumbaya moment. We had every member on this committee either publicly state or participate in a press conference before the sun had set on the first 24 hours of your nomination that they were going to vote against you. 
Now we're asking for all kinds of documents and you're getting them. As a matter of fact, I think that the chair has done an extraordinary job. He started out on this process by offering, acquiring as many as a million documents. We determined because of duplication and relevance, it was only a half a million. And they've all been provided. And I'm not an attorney, but I am a technologist. And I'm also a process person. And I know damn well that if you get documentation electronically, you can get through it in a matter of hours. And for the documents that got sent yesterday, you could get through it in a matter of hours. They have plenty of time to get documents that they only need to run up the score because they already know they're going to vote against you. This wasn't going to be a kumbaya moment, Alex. They knew that they were going to vote against him before <laughs> the sun had set. We hear that language again. We hear that metaphor. We're going into, you know, now we're in, in, a, in a campfire or something and we're, and we're talking about this. Um, what do you notice about this structure? It's like that folksy sort of uh, camp counselor, grandpa sort of language right there of like, I'm just like one of you regular folk that have your kumbaya moments out in the campfire cowpoke. Let's go mosey on down to the watering hole. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, there it is. And we hear him saying so many things about, you know, really framing this issue in, in a way that is very persuasive. Okay, it's very persuasive. I don't know how true it is, you know, but it's very persuasive. And it's this idea of uh, that the fact that you've provided these documents and, you know, now they're getting them. They've all been provided, he says repeatedly. Okay. And then he says this if you get the documents electronically, you can get through it in a matter of hours. Well, that's kind of silly, isn't it? Like just because you get something electronically that you're going to be able to read and really make a decision on it within a number of hours. But it doesn't matter since they already know they'll vote against you. Yeah, exactly. So what he's saying is that the whole idea of the documents is not really true. It's not really relevant. Um, but you see, that doesn't matter either because no matter when something like this goes through and you know, the Democrats here have a really good point, which is, hey, you've, you're electing someone to the highest office of the land. You probably want to be able to do your due diligence and, and, and know that. But this is, again, listening to the way that this whole thing went down and listening to the way that it got pushed through. It got pushed through with such a speed, OK, because they didn't want for anything to interfere with Kavanaugh actually being confirmed. And because it got pushed through with the speed, though, well, I don't know. Do you think that the Republicans lost some credibility uh, with their base, you know, with pushing it through at that speed or not really? <laughs> not really. So, yeah, not really. And so maybe it's because, you know, their base really only cared that the guy got confirmed and they really didn't care how that happened. But I do wonder about some of the undecided voters or maybe the moderates and how they watched all of this go down. And, you know, do they think that this is disqualifying at all for the midterms or, you know, even for 2020? Right. Yeah. I think if that if we're looking at that ultimate question right there of exactly what kind of an impact this has, I think we have to look at whether the Republicans think that midterm voters are high information voters or low information voters. And to be honest, most of the time, Midterm voters are, you know, pretty, they're fairly like high information because they vote every single election to the low information voters that drop off. So I think they're making a bad calculation here in that it's so close to election day with a lot of people who vote every single election and pay attention to the news. It will be interesting to see exactly how this plays out. So we're going to get to the next one here. Um, this is going to be Amy Klobuchar, who uh, a lot of people find um, really interesting, um, especially uh, uh, because she's um, very persuasive and a, um, a little bit of a rock star on the Judiciary Committee. What would that mean when it comes to laws protecting the special counsel? What would that mean when it comes to women's health care? The days of the divine rights of kings ended with the Magna Carta in 1215. And centuries later, in the wake of the American Revolution, a check on the executive was a major foundation of the United States Constitution. For it was James Madison, 
who may not have had a musical named after him, but was a top scholar of his time, who wrote in Federalist 47, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. Wow, she's really bringing us back, all the way back to the Magna Carta and Federalist 47. What she's doing here is evoking sort of a, a, a larger time frame, a time scale that scales all the way back and building this into a larger narrative. So she's saying that we've solved these problems long ago by having checks on the executive, by having checks on tyrants. And now we are faced with that question again. And the only way to solve that is the way that we always have. Now, she's making a lot of assumptions there about what Kavanaugh's positions are and of how you might um, go from uh, our democracy back to tyranny. And, you know, there's tons of assumptions there. But the large point that she's getting across here is that, again, emotional connection back to all of the things that we've solved previously, the things that are non-controversial and historical in our minds and, and already solved, and tying that to this issue by saying that we've solved all of these things before. They are also um, old and resolved, and this shouldn't actually be something that you have to think about. And um, that's what she's saying right here. Yeah, that's a really great point that once we have something far enough in the past and historians have agreed on what it actually meant, then you can use that without controversy. But certainly, I don't believe that most people have actually read Federalist 47. <laughs> They're probably not even familiar with the Magna Carta, although they may, you know, in general know what it did or what it was about. Okay, they're probably familiar with James Madison, but not too much in detail of what he actually did. So many of these things, as we go back, as we go back into history, remember that history is uh, his story, right? So as we go back and we listen to this, we realize that we have a story, okay? We have a story, just like we're talking about metaphor, just like we're talking about um, pounding the table or kumbaya. This is another story. This is another story that she's building up. It just happens to be based on something that actually happened. And it reminds me of a Bible preacher, okay, quoting a verse in the Bible, right. going through and, and being able to say things in this way where, you know, as you quote the verse, there's something unquestionable about it. And if you think about that, like what she's saying is, hey, this is true, this is true, this is true. And then she's weaving in to the history, she's weaving in exactly what it is that she wants for people to think about that. So she layers in meaning on top of the things that actually happened, and she links it to the current event. And that's where it can become a little persuasive. It's not that what happened is questionable. No, that happened, and we've all decided on what it meant. However, the meaning and the interpretation of it is completely up for grabs. And that's why even though, you know, we have a constitution which is, for example, uh, purposefully uh, not as concrete or specific as it could be, that we see just how well that's being able to be um, thought about in so many different ways by diverse groups. One group thinks this way, the other group thinks that way. It's because when you take a document or you take something in history and then you have an opportunity as time goes on to then frame it with in, in, in so many different ways, in, in so many different ways. And so she could just as easily have taken this type of uh, history and used it to support Kavanaugh if that was her um, slant. She could have talked about, you know, the Magna Carta and a different section of it, for example, that talked about um, judicial independence or, you know, it talked about uh, James Madison and how much he was in favor of the types of things that Kavanaugh was in favor of. She doesn't. And that's that's the ability to put the persuasive slant on it. 
Now, in this next part here, we're going to be listening to Cory Booker versus uh, Senator Cornyn. And this is something that really came out. Uh, it's, it was in the news. People are talking about it. And this is where Booker was releasing the confidential committee documents. And a lot of how this happened has already been covered. We want to give a little bit more nuance into exactly how this happened and kind of what he was saying uh, all about this. So let's take a listen to this clip. And I'm told that the committee confidential rules have knowing consequences. And so, sir, I come from a long line, as all of us do as Americans, and understand what that kind of civil disobedience is, and I understand the consequences. So I am right now, before your, before your um, process is finished, I'm going to release the email about racial profiling, and I understand that, that the penalty comes with potential ousting from the Senate. And if Senator Cornyn believes that I violated Senate rules, I, I openly invite and accept the consequences of my team releasing that email right now. And I'm releasing it to expose that, number one, the emails that are being withheld from the public have nothing to do with national security, nothing to jeopardize the sanctity of those ideals that I hold dear. Instead, what I'm releasing this document right now to, to show, sir, is that we have a process here for a person, the highest office in the land, for a lifetime appointment. We're rushing through this before me and my colleagues can even read and digest the information. Can I, ask, this, you, and can I, want, I ask you? Can I ask you how long you're going to say the same thing three or four times? No, sir. I, I'm how saying, long, I'm how saying, long do you want? To I'm take? saying I'm knowingly violating the rules. Okay. Senator Cornyn how many has called me out for it. How many times do you learn to tell us, sir? That? I've say, I'm saying right now that I'm releasing, I'm releasing committee Mr. confidential Mr. documents. Mr. Mr. Chairman, I'm from the service of the Senate and to punishment for contempt. So I would, uh, I would uh, correct the senator's statement. There is no rule. There is clearly a rule uh, that applies. Then apply Mr. the rule Chairman. and bring the charges. And we hear here Cory Booker really, you know, going at it full steam. You know, he says, you know, we understand, you know, I come from a long line of civil disobedience. I've decided to release the committee confidential documents, and it comes with potential ousting from the Senate. Now, think about when he says this, okay, this video clip being being played, and this is going to the media, and people are talking about this. How does this make him look to his base? Makes him look like a freaking hero, right? He's putting his butt on the line to be able to stand up for what's really, really important. And so he uses words like, I'm going to expose it. I'm going to show, and then he says, I'm going to show, sir. <laughs> I'm going to expose, I'm going to show this, that we're rushing through this. And so he, he says, I'm, I'm knowingly violating the rules. Yeah, it's sort of, it's one of those things where the chairman, Cornyn, actually knows what Booker's doing and calls him out on it to try and defuse the situation. And that's what I kind of love right here is that like normally the senators just allow each other to go off and grandstand and do their um, and do their pandering. But actually, uh, Cornyn actually calls them out on it and uh, and tries to um, diffuse the whole thing. And and it's really it's really quite entertaining to watch. I actually laughed out loud. Yeah. And we hear, you know, Chuck Grassley there, you know, coming in. How many times are you going to say the same thing? Three or four times. <laughs> and then it gets like... him to stop. He gets Booker to stop. <laughs> and then at the end of that uh, of that clip, you know, you hear, you know, uh, Booker saying, bring it, bring it, bring it. You know, he says there is a rule, then apply the rule and bring the charges. This is like. You know, one of those uh, one of those movie reenactments of, you know, the the, um, you know, Revolutionary War or, uh, you know, Civil War, you know, Senate type of thing where you know, you've got you've got these very contentious senators, you know, arguing with each other and, you know, uh, calling each other sir a lot, but making these, you know, very, very big points. So now we want to take a different turn and head on over to day five, the moment you guys have all been waiting for. This is after our uh, episode last week where we talked about Blazy Ford's testimony. 
This is when Kavanaugh finally gets his chance to rebut the claims she made against him. And he gets quite fiery. And we've got a few things to say about that. So let's get into his opening statement where he is talking about the, uh, the ordeal that he had to go through. In those 10 long days, as was predictable and as I predicted, my family and my name have been totally and permanently destroyed <coughs> by vicious and false additional accusations. The 10-day delay has been harmful to me and my family, to the Supreme Court, and to the country. When this allegation first arose, I welcomed any kind of investigation, Senate, FBI, or otherwise. The committee now has conducted a thorough investigation, and I've cooperated fully. I know that any kind of investigation, Senate, FBI, Montgomery County Police, whatever, will clear me. Listen to the people I know. Listen to the people who have known me my whole life. Listen to the people I've grown up with and worked with and played with and coached with and dated and taught and gone to games with and had beers with. And listen to the witnesses who allegedly were at this event 36 years ago. Listen to Ms. Kaiser. She does not know me. I was not at the party described by Dr. Ford. This confirmation process has become a national disgrace. And what's interesting here is that just listen to his tone of voice because the words that he wrote down are totally undermined by the way that he says them. I think if you listen to the words or perhaps write them down and read them, sounds like a very heartfelt statement but the way that he reads it the way that he puts that emotion into it makes it sound complaining rather than making him into the victim it sounds like entitlement and impatience and anger rather than sadness and and um and being the beleaguered victim and it really undermines a lot of of his statement and this whole hearing yeah, and he's basically telling you, hey, who's here's who, who you need to listen to. He does this whole thing of listen to the people who know me, listen to the one that I did this, listen to that person, listen to this person. And that's a way of directing the attention and saying, hey, who, here's who I want for you to you know think about. But again, people can't even hear that. You know, all they hear is this guy just yelling into the microphone, listen, to, you know, and it's just become so very overpowering. Now, the next part right here is where uh, Kavanaugh starts giving his statement in a little bit more Trumpian terms. And when, what I mean by that is that he's painting a story of betrayal, of subterfuge. This is the alternative reality of what's really going on and how everyone is out to get him. And what he's doing here in this next clip is... Again, drawing that attention from the narrative you've been given of the uh, Blasey Ford testimony, and you are now given an alternative set of facts and reality that you can cling to. It's sort of what that prosecutor probably could have done when she was questioning Blasey Ford, but never quite got to. Now he's giving that, that alternative set of, uh, of facts. The Constitution gives the Senate an important role in the confirmation process, but you have replaced advice and consent with search and destroy. Since my nomination in July, there's been a frenzy on the left to come up with something, anything, to block my confirmation. Shortly after I was nominated, the Democratic Senate leader said he would, quote, oppose me with everything he's got. A Democratic senator on this committee publicly, publicly referred to me as evil. Evil. Think about that word. And said that those who supported me were, quote, complicit in evil. Another Democratic senator on this committee said, quote, Judge Kavanaugh is your worst nightmare. 
a former head of the Democratic National Committee said, quote, Judge Kavanaugh will threaten the lives of millions of Americans for decades to come. I understand the passions of the moment, but I would say to those senators, your words have meaning. Millions of Americans listened carefully to you. Given comments like those, is it any surprise that people have been willing to do anything to make any physical threat against my family, to send any violent email to my wife, to make any kind of allegation against me and against my friends, to blow me up and take me down. You sowed the wind. For decades to come, I fear that the whole country will reap the whirlwind. The behavior of several of the Democratic members of this committee at my hearing a few weeks ago was an embarrassment but at least it was just a good old-fashioned attempt at borking. Those efforts didn't work when I did at least okay enough at the hearings that it looked like I might actually get confirmed a new tactic was needed. Some of you were lying in wait and had it ready. This first allegation was held in secret for weeks by a Democratic member of this committee and by staff. It would be needed only if you couldn't take me out on the merits. When it was needed, this allegation was unleashed and publicly deployed over Dr. Ford's wishes. And then, and then, as no doubt was expected, if not planned, came a long series of false last-minute smears designed to scare me and drive me out of the process before any hearing occurred. Crazy stuff. Gangs, illegitimate children, fights on boats in Rhode Island. All nonsense, reported breathlessly and often uncritically by the media. This has destroyed my family and my good name. A good name built up through decades of very hard work and public service at the highest levels of the American government. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit, fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. And that's it. He's telling a story. He creates all the characters. He builds those motivations and explains how it's all done. And it's almost cinematically, just like Obama did in his speech a couple episodes ago and Donald Trump does at every single rally. He builds it up so expertly, and this is, you know, perhaps why he has, you know, risen to his uh, position as a judge, because he has this ability to make arguments, right? He 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 says, you know, I would say to those senators, your words have meaning, and is it is any surprise that, and he de- details all the bad things that have had happened to him, you know, they want to blow me up and take me down, uh, the. He talks about the behavior of Democrats being embarrassing in the last um, hearings, but at least, you know, it was just business as usual. And then he talks about the new tactics that were needed, how senators were, quote, lying in wait and that they needed a new tactic that would only be needed if they couldn't take him down in the other ways. So he paints this idea that, you know, you've got this, it's a conspiracy thing, right? Like you've got these Democrats, they're sitting in the room, they've got, you know, level one, level two, level three, <laughs> they have the thing that they need now to take them down. And it was against Blasey Ford's wishes. And they were making false last minute statements and they were destroying me, the political hit. Wow. You know, he tells the story, he builds up all the motivations, the characters are there. And uh, he he does a very good job with, you know, with framing that for the people who believe him. 
Now, this next clip is Diane Feinstein, and she is now going to question him about why he doesn't want the FBI to investigate. And this is really interesting. It's hard to get across without the video because you'll see him do a lot of really interesting body language here, leaning back in his seat and uh, and sort of moving around wildly and uncomfortably. But just listen to the audio and see if you can hear it in his voice. If you're very confident of your position and you appear to be, why aren't you also asking the FBI to investigate these claims? Senator, I'll do whatever the committee wants. I wanted a hearing the day after the allegation came up. I wanted to be here that day. Instead, 10 days passed where all this nonsense is coming out, you know, that I'm in gangs, I'm on boats in Rhode Island, I'm in Colorado, you know, I'm cited all over the place. And these things are printed and run breathlessly by cable news. You know, I wanted a hearing the next day. I, my family's been destroyed by this, Senator. Destroyed. And, I'm, and, I'm and, and whoever wants, you know, whatever the committee decides, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all in immediately. Is, I'm all in immediately. You know, and the terrible and hard part of this is when we get an allegation, we're not in a position to prove it or disprove it. Therefore, we have to depend on some outside authority for it. And it, would, it just seemed to me then when these allegations came forward that you would want the FBI to investigate those claims and clear it up once and for all. Senator, uh, the committee investigates. It's not for me to, to say how to do it, but just so you know, the FBI doesn't reach a conclusion. They would give you a, a couple 302s that just tell you what we said. So I'm here. I wanted to be here. I wanted to be here the next day. It was an, it's an outrage that I was not allowed to come and immediately defend my name and say, I didn't do this and give you all this evidence. I'm not even, I'm not even in D.C. on the weekends in the summer of 1982. I'm, this happened on a weekday? Well, is it, would, 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 I'm not at a Blair High School for a summer league game. I'm not at Tobin's house working out. I'm not at a movie with Suzanne. You know, I wanted to be here right away. That well, the difficult thing is that it, the, these, these hearings are set and um, set by the majority. Um, but I'm talking about getting the evidence and having the evidence looked at. And I don't understand, you know, we hear from the witnesses um, but the FBI isn't interviewing them and isn't giving us any facts. So all we have... You're interviewing me. Say. You're interviewing me. You're, you're doing it, Senator. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're well, doing it. That's the, the, there's no conclusions reached. And, and what you're saying, if, if I understand it, is that the allegations by Dr. Ford, Ms. Ramirez, and Ms. Svetnik um, are, are wrong. That, that is emphatically what I'm saying. Emphatically. The Swetnik thing is a joke. That is a farce. Would you like to say more about it? No. Okay. That's it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Wow. And what we've got right here is it, it's Kavanaugh doing a lot of really nervous activity. When lie detectors are trained, when people are trained to detect deception, one of the most obvious tells are self-soothing techniques and nervous twitching. And we've got all of that right there. We've got Kavanaugh has this binder in front of him that he continues to move from one end of the table to the other. As he's talking, he just like takes the binder and moves it to one end and then he moves it to the other. Meanwhile, he's got this like Sharpie in his other hand and he's like pushing it against the table and then twisting it and turning it the other direction and then twisting it and turning it the other direction and just like flipping it back and forth. Then he does this thing where he's leaning forward into the microphone and then he leans back really far, really wide and, and stretches his back out 
And then he's got all of these like nervous smiles where he'll say something and he'll almost like break out into like a laugh as he's saying it. And then quickly like his emotions turn right back to like sadness or anger. And it's, it's really weird. But right then those moments are self-soothing techniques where the body is so overwhelmed with nervousness that it, it has methods to calm itself down. And those are some of them right there that, that, nervous laughter those uh those twitches those movements of of moving objects across the table back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and then the sort of relaxed posture of trying to lean back and and put yourself at ease but then getting drawn right back into it and we see his classic idea of tensing up the jaw his face just going up into this ball he is, you know, moving back and forth. When he said that no, he, he did that kind of forward lean in his posture, and then he rocked back really, really strongly. Um, also, toward the end of this clip, one of the things, if you watch the video, is, is that you have uh, Alyssa Milano, who's, you know, there for the Me Too movement, and, you know, she's holding up a phone and, like, taking a video or a picture of the whole thing. <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting um, to watch that. So, yeah, I mean, and we hear even on the audio auditory channel, we hear him, you know, saying things like, you know, uh, you're doing it. You're questioning me, you know, as if his need to, you know, be questioned within the within the Senate means that they shouldn't have the ability to have FBI investigation of the witnesses. And, um, you know, Diane Feinstein asks him, OK, do you. You know, would you like to say more about that? And he just says, no, you know, it's, it's this almost, you know, tempestuous, uh, you know, way, way of being where, you know, he's just, he's just standing there and he's like, you know, you're trying to frame me and you're trying to do this. And so I'm just not going to cooperate. And it's just not a good look for, you know, a Supreme court justice. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't paint the highest court in the land, at, you know, very well to, uh, to have him as a part of it. You know, when you see this, uh, this body language. And now people often ask me, hey, you watch the hearings. Do you think he was lying? Who do you think was lying? Well, we're about to see a little bit more of that right here as all of those self-soothing techniques that we just talked about start getting even more intense in this next section. Dr. Ford has described you as being intoxicated at a party. Did you consume alcohol during your high school years? Yes, we drank beer. Uh, my friends and I, the boys and girls, yes, we drank beer. I liked beer. Still like beer. We drank beer. The drinking age, as I noted, was 18, so the seniors were legal. Senior year in high school, people were legal to drink. And we, yeah, we drank beer. And I said sometimes, sometimes probably had too many beers, and sometimes other people had too many beers. What we you, drank beer. We liked beer. What do you consider to be too many beers? I don't know. Uh, you know, we, whatever the chart says uh, on your blood alcohol chart. When you talked to Fox News the other night, you said that there were times in high school when people might have had too many beers on occasion. Does that include you? Sure. Have you ever passed out from drinking? I've, uh, passed out would be no, but I've gone to sleep, but I've never blacked out. That's the, that's the, the allegation, uh, and uh, that, that, that's wrong. So let's talk about your time in high school. In high school, after drinking, did you ever wake up in a different location than you remembered passing out or going to sleep? No, no. Did you ever wake up with your clothes in a different condition or fewer clothes on than you remembered when you went to sleep or passed out? No, no. Did you ever tell, uh, uh, did anyone ever tell you about something that happened in your presence that you didn't remember and, uh, during a time that you had been drinking? No, the, the, we drank beer and, you know, so, so did I think the vast majority of, of people our age at the time. But in any event, we drank beer and, and uh, still do. So whatever, 
Yeah. During the time in high school when you would be drinking, did anyone ever tell you about something that you did not remember? No. Dr. Ford described a small gathering of people at a suburban Maryland home in the summer of 1982. She said that Mark Judge, P.J. Smith, and Leland Ingham also were present, as well as an unknown uh, male, and that the people were drinking to varying degrees. Were you ever at a gathering that fits that description? No, as I've said in my opening statements. Opening statement. Dr. Ford described an incident where she was alone in a room with you and Mark Judge. Have you ever been alone in a room with Dr. Ford and Mark Judge? No. Dr. Ford described an incident where you were grinding your genitals on her. Have you ever ground or rubbed your genitals against Dr. Ford? No. Dr. Ford described an incident where you covered her mouth with your hand. Have you ever covered Dr. Ford's mouth with your hand? No. Dr. Ford described an incident where you tried to remove her clothes. Have you ever tried to remove her clothes? No. Now, there's a couple of things going on right here. So we talked about the lie detection, right? The things right here, when this section starts out, what he's got is a death grip of his arms crossed and his you can see his left arm, his left hand is like, clutched into his jacket and like this death grip and it, it's like he's almost gonna like rip the shirt sleeve off because he's just like so like withdrawn and and self-soothing right there next you've got him pursing his lips as he's being asked these questions in this really tense manner that um I, who knows might even leave his lips chapped with like how how tight and small they are and then you've got his nervous laughing too, where he he's again doing that that uh, that laugh, and he starts looking around as if it's a joke, or he, he's trying to make jokes um, to uh, soothe himself. But the most telling thing that I see right here is if you look very closely at his eyes, when she, especially at the beginning, when she would ask him a question about those events uh, of drunkenness and his drinking habits. She would ask him the question, and he would be looking at her. Then he would look straight ahead as if he's remembering something. And then his eyes would dart very, very, so imperceptibly small to his right. And then he would turn right back to her and say no or to give an answer. And, and it all happens in a fraction of a second right there. But, but what you see is him staring ahead and remembering what the actual true answer is. And then you get that eye movement very, very swiftly, very just imperceptibly. It doesn't even go all the way to the, all the way to his right. Like his eyeball doesn't move the whole way. It just, it just dances for a fraction of a second over there. And then he turns and gives, um, an answer and something like that, I would argue is, it's a sign of dishonesty. Yeah, he's creating something right there. And I got to say, this clip really, really makes him look guilty. Okay, this this clip more than anything else, even, you know, his opening statement or his aggressive tone, um, because you see the incongruence. You see how his words don't match his body language, where he just has so much going on with the body language you know, that is, that is going on, uh, there. So a couple of things, you know, that happened there. I mean, one thing to really notice here is that he doesn't change his aggressive tone when he's talking with Miss Mitchell, right? Like I can understand, okay, he's got the aggressive tone with, uh, Dianne Feinstein. However, you know, Miss Mitchell is there for the Republicans to basically ask their questions for them and in a way make him look better. He still maintains that same aggressive tone you know, I wonder why he, he does that. Um, we have the thing that everyone comments on, which is, you know, we drank beer. We like beer. <laughs> you know, we, we, we drank beer. I, I really like beer. I still drink beer. And um, he has he has that, uh, you know, that that party, that line that he continues to say again and again and again. Um, if you were to watch this clip, you might, might want to notice the facial flush. So what happens is that mm -hmm. he starts to answer a question and his face starts to flush. And it, it will happen, you know, um, 
right at the moment at which he is remembering or recalling something. And what I found really telling, and this is why I say that this clip makes him look really guilty, is during the part of the testimony where Miss Mitchell is asking him the specific questions about what he did with Christine Blasey Ford, he is answering it very quickly, like, no, no, no. And so he's he's in this very prepared, aggressive state. There is a moment, though, in which right before, you know, she asks the next question, he kind of looks down very dismissively, okay? He goes to write down something on his notepad. Who knows what he's writing down? Okay, it didn't look like anything substantive. But he kind of lets go of his guard for half of a second, okay? And then he goes right back up to her, um, having the same prepared type of response, Right. And what I'm saying about this is that it's prepared. It's not something in which he is even thinking about what she's saying. You know, more, it's more just, you know, anything she's going to ask the question to that makes him look guilty, he's just going to say no to it. And, you know, we do have that moment though where he kind of lets go. And in that moment, he just looks like he has contemptuousness for the entire thing. Like this doesn't matter. There's, you know, nothing, you know, serious about this. And he is just kind of pushing it off to the side. And, you know, this is what to look for, by the way, when someone, you know, in truth telling is like someone can have a real uh, steely face or a real kind of stone exterior. What do they do when they relax? What do they do when they think they're no longer under the gun? And that can be very, very telling. And what, what we see from him are body language indicators that show that, well, he's he's definitely at least not thinking truthfully about it at that moment in time. Right. There's a there's an effect that um, I once uh, heard referred to. Um, I think it was what was it the the deceiver's delight or, or something like that, where uh, yeah. right at the moment where somebody thinks that they told a really good lie you'll see a fraction of a tell of some sort of joy or some sort of uh, of smile or like a crack of a smile or some sort of moment of relaxation, like, phew, I got away with it. And that that's what you would look for if somebody's lying, is that fraction of a moment where they get that that delight. Yeah, and another body language tell to, to look out, uh, out for here, and this are some of the micro-expressions, is he he has during this questioning sequence he has his uh, eyebrows start to come together and when you get that very tight between the eyebrows and the tensed up jaw what that is indicating is disgust okay it's universal it's across cultures when someone has that tense up you know eyebrow thing that's happening uh, right between the eyebrows they're communicating disgust as though he has just disgust for the for the whole question and for the whole process. All right, so we just heard uh, the uh, the prosecutor give him some questions again, and they didn't quite go that well optically, as you can as you probably could tell by now. Well, the Republicans could tell that as well, and this is when Lindsey Graham decides to abandon this entire plan of allowing the prosecutor to ask the questions for the Republicans, and he decides to take the committee back into his own hands, and here he goes. Uh, with his, uh, here he goes with his monologue. I cannot imagine what you and your family have gone through. Boy, y'all want power. God, I hope you never get it. I hope the American people can see through this sham that you knew about it and you held it. You had no intention of protecting Dr. Ford. None. She's as much of a victim as you are. God, I hate to say it because... These have been my friends. But let me tell you, when it comes to this, you're looking for a fair process. You came to the wrong town at the wrong time, my friend. Do you consider this a job interview? The advice and consent role is like a job interview. You consider that you've been through a job interview. I've been through a process of advice and consent under the Constitution. Would you say you've been through hell? I've been through uh, hell and then some. This is not a job interview. Yeah. This is hell. This, this, This is going to destroy the ability of good people to come forward because of this crap. Your high school yearbook. 
you have interacted with professional women all your life, not one accusation. You're supposed to be Bill Cosby when you're a junior and senior in high school. And all of a sudden, you got over it. It's been my understanding that if you drug women and rape them for two years in high school, you probably don't stop. Here's my understanding. If you lived a good life, people would recognize it, like the American Bar Association has the gold standard. His integrity is absolutely unquestioned. He is the very circumspect in his personal conduct harbors no biases or prejudices. He's entirely ethical, is a really decent person. He is warm, friendly, unassuming. He's the nicest person, the ABA. The one thing I can tell you, you should be proud of. Ashley, you should be proud of this, that you raised a daughter who had the good character to pray for Dr. Ford. To my Republican colleagues, if you vote no, you're legitimizing the most despicable thing I have seen in my time in politics. You want this seat? I hope you never get it. I hope you're on the Supreme Court. That's exactly where you should be. And I hope that the American people will see through this charade. And I wish you well, and I intend to vote for you, and I hope everybody who's fair-minded will. Now, why is it that when senators are making these impassioned debates, they always refer to the other side as their friends? <laughs> I hate to say it because my friends, you know, these people are my friends. And, but then he goes on and he says, you know, this is hell. Okay, you came to the wrong town at the wrong time. This is hell. And even, you know, Kavanaugh, you know, is, is, is not infuriated enough about this for Lindsey Graham. That, that's what's great about this clip. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is sort of where I get the idea that maybe the Republicans made a bad calculation of allowing the prosecutor to n not only just interview Blasey Ford, which, you know, might have been a good call, but to allow her to continue questioning Kavanaugh afterward when that's really the tactically the Republicans moment to shine and to get up and grandstand and to make their big points. Lindsey Graham saw that seized the moment, especially after Kavanaugh had such an abysmal uh, series of questions with the prosecutor right before this, and he gets up and takes the whole committee hearing back. And that's what, honestly, the Republicans probably should have done with the Kavanaugh side of things tactically, and um, it, it really shows. I really like, though, all of the folksy moments right there where he's really trying to, you know, build that rapport again, bringing out, you know, my friends and, um, you know, this is this is terrible. Think about, you know, your daughter and, you know, how great of a, a woman you raised her to be, um, you know, sort of building in also that uh, that sense of family and empathy for him. And he really does come across as though he's genuinely outraged. It really does. Um, come across as authentic anger and authentic outrage. And um, maybe that's what makes Lindsey Graham such a great politician, but um, he's really able to turn it on here. And, you know, we hear that with the wrong town, okay, for example, or he doesn't say city, he doesn't say metropolitan, right, like a Western. it's a town. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's getting into this. And even though his anger, you know, his outrage, it might be genuine, that doesn't mean that what he's saying is true here, okay? It doesn't mean that all the points he is making are true. Mm -hmm. I think now, like, we have enough of a consensus on how Brett Kavanaugh behaved in these hearings to say that he's not always the most, quote, warm, friendly, unassuming, the nicest person, okay? But that's that's the Trump thing, right? <laughs> it's like they're the nicest person, completely the nicest in the world. Totally. You know, how nice do you have to be to be the nicest person? Right. Um, you know, Lindsey Graham says things like, you know, this is going to destroy the ability of good people to come forward. Yeah. And what about the ability of survivors of sexual assault to come forward? OK, how, how about that? And, you know, he says something which is just categorically untrue. Right. You know, if you drug women and rape women, then you don't stop. Um, 
I don't know that Kavanaugh's really been accused of drugging, you know, women, but certainly he's being being accused of, you know, assaulting them. And, you know, this whole idea that, you know, you you can't, you know, do it at one point in your life and then stop. Well, that's just factually untrue. Right. Yeah. Kavanaugh could very well be guilty of this. We don't know. Um, and uh, Lindsey Graham tries to tries to do that, that artful distraction um, with sort of that that cause and effect. Um, this is true. Therefore, this other thing must be true. And we see how powerful his passion is here, right? We see how powerful anger is here. So this moment by Lindsey Graham was widely referenced, okay? Um, I remember on my social media that people were actually posting this, and they were posting this moment. And, you know, either they said that Lindsey Graham is, you know, kind of going crazy here, or they really believed him, and they really believed his authenticity And this is where, you know, kind of as human beings, sometimes we get into trouble because we think that anger and outrage is authenticity and truth. And we think that being more angry means that you are more authentic when in reality that can easily be faked, right? People can actually just fake being angry about something. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see a lot actually with Kavanaugh's uh, testimony was that we see him like darting among several different emotions very rapidly and um and i would argue that that's sort of a, a an indication of deception um or at least he's pretending to be angry when he might not actually be or he's pretending to be remorseful or sad or apologetic when he might not actually be um and he's really angry something in there though does not um come across as authentic because he's moving uh, among the emotions so quickly yeah, and that's where we have to look at those subtle body language tells. We have to be able to look at it and really pay attention and analyze it a little bit more deeply. Um, I think that given the way that it all played out, it certainly didn't play out well for Kavanaugh in making him, you know, look innocent. Okay, it certainly didn't, you know, play out well for him, you know, in, in that way. And that's probably a combination of factors. You know, maybe it's the prosecutor. You know, maybe it is his temperament. Maybe it is, you know, how Blazy Ford appeared. Um, but I think, you know, mostly, you know, just watching these clips, it's it's the way that he himself, you know, addressed uh, the whole situation, you know, uh, the way that he himself actually, you know, went went through it. All right. I think that's about all the time that we've got for today. Um, tune in next time. We'll have a lot of uh, really interesting topics just like this one coming soon. Uh, If you guys really enjoyed this show, go ahead and uh, head on down to the iTunes podcast store and give us a a good review, five stars, of course, and write down your favorite things about the show. Be sure to send us your questions, your thoughts, um, things maybe that you want us to read on the air um, through to our website at uh, subliminallycorrect.com. You can also head to Twitter and tweet at us at SubliminalPod. And we look forward to seeing you all next time. Remember to check out that Patreon page. So just scroll down in the show notes. We really appreciate your support. And until then, we will see you next time.